Well, greetings and welcome. Welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mollett. You can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube, and you can search for and subscribe to our channel there. Uh, You can also find us on iTunes just using your favorite podcast catcher. You can just search for Logical Belief. We should come up, and you can subscribe to our feed there. Uh, Feel free to send me an email or a note. Uh, You can just send those to jason at logicalbelief.org or from the contact page on the website. Well, uh, today uh, we're going to get an episode out um, quickly here. Uh, There's two things that uh, I want to discuss today, and uh, one primarily. uh, This uh, Today's episode is mostly going to be about the topic of what does the Bible say about uh, things uh, on on the topic of like self-defense, um, our uh, right to protect our families and our loved ones? Uh, what is what is the the biblical uh, perspective on this? And I also, before I get into that though, um, I wanted to uh, briefly uh, talk about uh, a article that came out on Charisma News recently written by Jamie Morgan. Jamie Morgan is a uh, women pastor for uh, an Assemblies of God uh, Pentecostal church, uh, Life Church in Williamstown, New Jersey. And uh, she recently uh, wrote an article uh, that has been uh, become pretty popular um, out there in the blogosphere and in social media and uh, it's been shared all over i see it uh, all over on social media i see people that should frankly know better uh redistributing this piece and um and i i decided it just it had to be addressed so i i wrote a piece on that you can find uh that article on the website a biblical response to 50 reasons why i don't drink but uh, the main reason that I, I decided to do a response to this was uh, just the complete lack of discernment um, I saw out there for, first of all, why are professing Christians, uh, and, and many Christians that, you know, there, there are those professing Christians that you expect this type of behavior from. You expect them to share uh, things by women pastors because... Fact, they go to a church with a woman pastor, so they don't have a problem with this. But where I have concern is for is for those that I've seen out there that should frankly know better, uh, that that know what the biblical uh, position is on this, to be uh, promoting and sharing this article, uh, considering where it came from, and that's that's the first thing. Uh, why are we promoting something? Um, that does not come from a source that we as Christians would consider sound. Um, so that's that's the first thing that that concerned me when uh, when I saw this. The the second issue that I had with the article, and which is why I wrote the response to it that I did, was the argumentation in the article was. <laughs> 
on a level of sophistry I, I just I haven't uh, I haven't seen <laughs> in quite a while. There was literally no biblical exegesis, and the assumptions and the category errors um, that were made in this in this article were were horrendous. Uh, there are good biblical reasons why a Christian should refrain from drinking. There are good reasons, and there are good, solid Bible teachers that can write articles and preach sermons on why a Christian should not drink, or should at least consider not drinking. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say should not drink because to to say. Uh, that it's wrong to drink or it's a sin to have an alcoholic beverage or a beverage that has alcohol in it. Um, I, I don't find that to be biblical at all. Um, but uh, if you want to check that article out, uh, go ahead and uh, make sure that you read the link at the top, which is a link to the original article written by Jamie Morgan. Uh, you can go ahead and then you can see my response to that. Uh, the one thing I also wanted to respond to on this podcast is there are many Christians who um, have responded to my article and stated, well, you know, you just don't understand that that um, the wine used in uh, the the time um, in the biblical times, uh, the times of Jesus and, and in that era was cut wine. It wasn't it didn't have. Uh, the level of alcoholic content uh, wine does today. Um, and I'm like, yeah, I'm fine with that. Uh, that's completely irrelevant, actually. Um, the point is, is that the Bible tells us as Christians to um, to not engage in drunkenness, uh, to not um, be filled with much wine. Now, there's no there's no uh, alcoholic level content uh, blood level um, noted in the Bible the Bible doesn't tell us that Paul simply tells us to not be filled with much wine so if us as Christians if we're discerning and if it is true that wine today is more potent than wine back then and so it can get you uh, inebriated it can get you to a level which is a sin more quickly than what do we as Christians do well, we either don't have as much, or we don't we don't uh, embellish in that particular drink, uh, if there is uh, such a thing. Uh, now, I would say that wine probably back then was probably uh, had a a fairly high alcohol content when it was pure wine. If they used it to sanitize water, yeah, it, it probably had a much lower, probably closer to maybe like beer is today or something. Um, but the point is, is it was still alcohol. And um, we can see this by so many different examples uh, in the New Testament um, of uh, Jesus' first recorded miracle in, in the book of Mark, uh, where he um, where he turned uh, the water into wine at the the wedding ceremony in Cana. Um, and it was obvious from there that the alcohol, that were was being drank at that wedding feast was uh, contained alcohol because some of the guests were obviously had too much already. And you could even say, well, was Jesus promoting um, bad behavior here? No, he wasn't. It was it's still a sin to drink uh, or to get drunk. And uh, 
Jesus was simply God is going to hold the guests at that wedding feast responsible and accountable for what they did with the wine that Jesus provided for them. If they if uh, if they weren't drunk and they had some in a controlled way, then uh, they were they were fine. But if they used what Jesus provided to to get themselves to a level of where uh, they were not thinking clearly and um, were in a drunken state, then they are accountable for their own sin. And so I just I'd encourage you if you if you're interested in this topic, go ahead and just uh, to read the article and uh, to see what uh, I have to say there. Um, the main thing is, I, you know, I don't want to become the apologist. And I said this in the article. I don't want to become the apologist for Christian drinking. <laughs> I think there's lots of very good reasons why Christians should abstain completely from alcohol. But you cannot make the case biblically that drinking any sort of alcoholic beverage at all for a Christian um, is sin. And to do so would make Jesus himself a sinner. And uh, I, uh, I just don't think that you can biblically uh, make that claim. So, well, let's, uh, let's jump into uh, today's topic. Alrighty. Well, um, there's also been uh, some uh, hoopla out there in the land of the Internet um, as a result of an article that John Piper uh, put out. um, It's almost two weeks ago, I would say, at this point. Maybe it's even longer. Um, I'm not sure exactly when it came out. But uh, it's it's caused a little bit of... uh, um, consternation, I guess, in the and I think there's been some very good responses to uh, John Piper's article. Um, J.D. Hall from Pulpit and Pen put out a response. Um, I think there was, uh, I don't remember the other, there was another blog that I had read a response on. And so I just wanted to take a moment and and just, and just go through what does the Bible say and uh, look at uh, some of the scriptures and uh, and let's see what uh, what scripture actually tells us because once again just as i was talking about before we need to go to scripture as the source of our authority and not our emotions and uh so we're just going to jump right in here and we're going to look first at what does the old testament scriptures uh tell us about uh what we should do when it comes to the situation of defending our families and uh, using things like even guns or, or whatever weapon uh, that you might have available to protect your family and to use as an equalizing factor, uh, considering what is available out there for criminals and and uh, those who would uh, have the desire to do us harm. Um, the first passage I want to read, and this is actually a passage that Jesus himself quoted. Uh, when he was speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, he quotes from this psalm. He says, ye are gods. And what he was doing is he was 
he was telling the Pharisees that they were uh, not judging him correctly, not with justice. And so that's why he referenced uh, that they were that they were being the unjust judges uh, in their judgment against him. Uh, they were being the unjust judges of Psalm 82. And so let's just read uh, two verses from this psalm in Psalm 82. Uh, and it says, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So any of us that are going to be just according to the word of God, um, according to God's word, it is our mandate to rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That is uh, something that we are responsible for as Christians. Uh, not to go out there and take vengeance, personal vengeance. That's not our responsibility. But to provide a defense for those who are unable to provide a defense for themselves, it is a mandate given to all believers, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Uh, we also see in Isaiah 1.17, it says, Learn to do good, seek justice, Correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. So, once again, we need to seek justice as believers. We need to promote that which is just. And we need to protect those who are unable to. In Exodus 22, verse 2, um, it gives the uh, scenario within uh, the Mosaic Code um, about how it is to be dealt with in a particular situation. I'll just go ahead and read this text. In Exodus 22, verse 2, it says, If a thief is found breaking in and struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So notice here that if... If somebody is in a particular situation where they are being uh, threatened in a way and they don't know exactly what that threat is, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night, you can tell somebody is in your house that doesn't belong there, but you don't really know what their intention is. You know, is their intention to take your TV or is their in intention to kidnap your son or rape your wife? Um, you don't know what their intention is. So if they are struck and they die as a result of that, uh, because you can't tell what their intention is, then uh, there's no blood guilt. That's not that's not uh, murder. Murder, there has to be a distinction made here. Uh, there needs to be a distinction made between murder and killing. Um, and the Bible uh, is abundantly clear that there is such a thing as just killing. Uh, and there is such a thing as unjust killing. Uh, for example, we even have right after the flood, we have God telling Noah in Genesis 9 verse 6, he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So we see here, even before the Mosaic law, we see God telling Noah, that the death penalty was 
um, the penalty befitting the crime of an unjust killing, a murder. And I think this contrasts with the way God dealt with Cain when he killed his brother Abel. But that's a topic for another time. But we also notice here, it says, By man shall his blood be shed. So the man who puts the person to death that has murdered someone is not a murderer. He is justly killing another human being because of the man's crime against an image bearer of God. Notice here that the reason that God gives for why man should be put to death and why capital punishment is biblical and is and is God's uh, mandate for us as a human race before the uh, Sinaitic law, before uh, the time of Moses, is that man is made in the image of God. And so, therefore, for one human being to unjustly take the life of another human being is to, first of all, um, an image bearer of God is God's property. You're destroying God's property. Um, And uh, number two, that person has value and dignity because they are an image bearer of God. And so that we are... As human beings, for us to take the life unjustly of another person um, would be to desecrate the image of God. Now, the question I would have is, are human beings image bearers of God today? This law here that God passed down to Noah um, was before the Mosaic law. And the reason God gives is because they are people are those who bear his image. So if people still bear the image of God today, uh, if an image bearer of God's life is taken away unjustly, is it not just and right for uh, their life to be taken? Um, I believe the, uh, the message there is uh, clear. Um, the one thing that I also want to go to is so often a lot of these texts are in the Old Testament are simply dismissed. And there's really no biblical reason for this. Uh, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, Paul, in writing to Timothy, says, and, and the one thing that you have to, before I even read this text, is you have to recognize when when Paul was writing to Timothy, the scroll or the codex that Timothy had in his hand that he called scripture was very likely the Greek Septuagint of the uh, Old Testament scriptures. And so when Paul wrote to Timothy here and he said, all scripture is breathed out by God, is theunustast, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we can see in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the Old Testament scripture is included in all scripture, right? And I would include New Testament scripture in, in that also. But when Paul was even writing this to Timothy, the New Testament hadn't been collated yet. 
There was no New Testament book. They Timothy may have had uh, maybe the letter that Paul had written to Ephesus or maybe a few other letters, but uh, he may have only had his uh, Septuagint and this letter that Paul, or Paul's first letter, First uh, Timothy, and the second letter from Paul. Maybe that's all he had um, at that time. And so um, he may have had one gospel, maybe a gospel of Mark or something, but uh, when, when Paul was writing this, Timothy definitely understood what Paul was saying. And there wasn't this classical dispensational difference this hard line between the Old and New Testament and none of the Old Testament is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. Um, there, there was no understanding of that until more modern times. All of Scripture is profitable. In fact, we see in Galatians chapter 4, I believe it's uh, verse 4, um, or is it Galatians 3? I think it's Galatians 4. It says, And when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So notice that Jesus himself came, and he lived under the Old Testament law. All these scriptures that we just read about um, our biblical mandate for... um, delivering those who are needy and weak uh, from the hand of the wicked. Though That was the, the law that Jesus was under. That's the law that he came and placed himself under as the God-man, as the incarnate one. We also see Jesus confirm this. And the thing that sometimes blows my mind is that those who go through the Sermon on the Mount and they separate the Sermon on the Mount as a separate law. This, this law that's separate and disconnected from the Old Testament law because Jesus abolished that Old Testament law and now he instituted you know, what he said on the Sermon on the Mount in, in the red letters in the Gospels. You know, that, that is the New Testament law and all Old Testament law is meaningless. We, there is nothing there that's profitable for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. Nothing there. Jesus absolutely refutes this in the 17th verse of Matthew chapter 5 at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus sets the standard before he gets into the Sermon on the Mount that he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law that Jesus perfectly kept and fulfilled, he fulfilled the ceremonial laws because they all pointed to him. Um, he, he fulfilled uh, the sacrificial system. We don't need to do that anymore because Jesus was the one who fulfilled it. But he also perfectly followed God's moral law the moral requirements that is upon all men, whether you were Jew or Greek, um, before the time of Christ. In Romans chapter 2, verse 15, Paul is speaking of uh, the Gentiles here, and he says, They show that the works of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse 
or even excuse them. So notice here that Paul is saying that 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 law, what part of of the Old Testament law is written upon their heart? Well, it wasn't the that that we shouldn't wear mixed threads or eat shellfish. No, it was it was the commandments of God that um, that are rooted in the Ten Commandments. And we can talk about the fifth commandment. That's that's a topic for another time. But are rooted in the Ten Commandments, God's moral requirements. For example, the Sabbath day is not written upon man's heart, but thou shalt not steal is written upon man's heart. Um, so let's see here. Where was I at? Okay, so we're back at the Sermon on the Mount. So I just have failed to understand this reasoning that comes from people that the Old Testament is not profitable when Jesus himself completely refuted that, um, that he did not come to abolish that law, um, but he came to fulfill it. And he did. In fact, the righteousness that in that great verse, one of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake... He made him, that being God, he made him, him being Jesus Christ, him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. We have the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God, his perfect obedience to the law that he came to fulfill. That is the righteousness that currently applies to our account. Did you ever think about that? Jesus' perfect obedience of God's law delivered to Moses is what is currently your righteousness. Your righteousness right now is based upon Jesus' perfect fulfillment of God's law in the Old Testament. If we even go through the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of times people say, well, you know, Jesus said, well, you've heard it has been said. And then he eliminates that and sets the standard higher. N no, that's not true at all. In fact, Jesus is clarifying for the Jews what God's standard has always been. What God's requirements have always been, even in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus didn't say anything new in the in the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't say anything new at all. Many of the things that were quoted as a higher standard uh, or what God was really requiring, let's say, when it comes to thou shalt not commit adultery or any of these things are already things that were in the Old Testament. Uh, if we take even uh, Jesus' uh, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, where he said, uh, you have heard it has been said, you shall not commit adultery. And this is a direct quote from Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who even looks at a woman with lust, uh, Fontana has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, this is already talked about in the Old Testament. In Job 31.1, it says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? So Job here is demonstrating here that God's requirement is already, and this is why he's made a covenant with his eyes, is because to gaze at a virgin, at one who is not your wife, and to... Um, to look lustfully upon that person is a sin before God. And so Jesus was just confirming what was already in the Old Testament. Um, you also have in Matthew 5.38, just a little bit further. For example, he says, You have heard it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
uh, Lex Talianus. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. um, Let's actually stop right there. But do not resist the one who is evil. The issue that Jesus was bringing up here is that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was a direct quote from Exodus chapter 21. And I'm actually trying to find it here. Uh, I don't have the exact verse, but it's an exact quote from Exodus chapter... Oh, it's actually uh, 21 verse 24. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. The problem is, is Exodus 21 was written to the magistrates, the judges of Israel. It was written to those who were in the position of authority in order to exact punishment justly upon those who violated God's law. It was not for the purpose of a personal vendetta, which is what Jesus is addressing here. Jesus is not eliminating this and saying that Lex Talianus or a a uh, punishment which is comparable to what the crime was. Jesus didn't say that that's no longer required. That's still required. Governments today are obligated by God's law to enact laws that make the punishment of the crime comparable to the crime itself. And so, Jesus was not saying this doesn't no longer apply. He's saying you're misapplying it. You don't use it to personally resist the one who is evil. If somebody comes over and steals my TV from my house, I don't go over to his house later on with my 9 millimeter. And uh, and shoot him for it, or uh, you know, go and uh, burn his house down or something. We we don't resist. We don't take vengeance. In fact, in Deuteronomy thirty-two verse thirty-five, vengeance is mine, and recompense is what God Himself said. Vengeance belongs to Him. Vengeance is in the hand of God, and so. We should not exact personal vengeance. And this is what Jesus is addressing here. The most common verse that is often used to promote pacifism is uh, is the next statement here, uh, right after Jesus talked about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He says, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Okay. Well, let's look at that. First of all, if someone was to slap you on the right cheek, it was it was a uh, offending get gesture back at that time where somebody would take their left hand and they would backhand you across the right side of your face um, to you would do this to people that were beneath you or at least you thought were beneath you um, and you would. Uh, demonstrate uh, your disgust at someone with this type of a thing. Jesus was saying, uh, if somebody does that to you, uh, take it. Turn to him the other cheek. First of all, maybe you did something wrong. Acknowledge you're wrong. Turn to him the other cheek. Uh, Maybe there was a reason why he slapped you on uh, the right cheek. Um, And even if he didn't, uh, if somebody's wronging you in that, if be willing to be wronged. The, the, the point is, in this text, 
is that this verse has nothing to do with a life-threatening attack. A slap on the cheek is not threatening to your is not threatening bodily harm to you. It's not threatening your life or the life of your family. This verse isn't even talking about that at all. It just doesn't have anything to do with it. And so to use this as a um, as a verse to promote a doctrine of pacifism or non-resistance in the face of uh, a life-threatening situation or a threat against your own family, which which uh, Scripture tells us, which Paul tells us in, if I can now find it, and I didn't even put it here, but uh, Paul tells us in, find the Scripture here, Looks like I didn't put it down. Oh, no, here it is. First Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So if a person is unwilling to protect their family, to lift a hand in defense of their family, um, I believe you're worse than an unbeliever uh, if you lack a willingness to do that. Um Okay, let's see here. Where were we at? So, so Jesus goes, um, Jesus goes on to say there in Matthew chapter five. It says, uh, "Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you." You have heard that it was said, "You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I say to you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So we should pray for those who persecute us. Um, we should um, give to those who are in need, who beg. Uh, those who borrow, give without uh, loan, without uh, being worried whether somebody's going to pay you back or not, uh, demanding uh, payment back. You know, I, I've got money loaned right now. Uh, a large amount of money loaned to somebody, and uh, I'm not uh, I'm not worried about it. God will take care of that. Um, um, I believe that they will take care of it, but that's uh, that's another that's another story. So um, the other thing that people will often say is, well, well, you know, the law of you know we're not under the Ten Commandments anymore. Uh, we're not under any. You know, we don't need to, none of that Old Testament law is, is profitable for us in any way. The only thing that we live by is Jesus, the two greatest commandments. The thing that I find to be a little humorous about this, and this is uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34, when they came up and they asked him what, were the greatest, what was the greatest commandment in the law. And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. He didn't say that this eliminated any of the law and the prophets. What he said, it didn't abolish the law and the prophets. He said this is the underlying commandments which are under the law and the prophets. If you do this, you will fulfill all the law and the prophets. Now, the point is, is this law should humble us because we realize we've never done this. 
we've actually never accomplished this and we won't accomplish this. This is why we need the righteousness of Christ. Praise God for his gracious redemption of people who don't deserve it and who cannot live up to his standard. But the interesting thing is, is both of these statements, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, are direct quotes from the Old Testament. There's no way that this, this is a new law that eliminates the Old Testament. This is a direct quote from the Old Testament. In Leviticus 19.18, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Notice in this passage here, it's once again talking about vengeance. Vengeance is God, and it is not our responsibility to take vengeance upon those who wrong us personally. Um, and in Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema itself, we see here Jesus directly quoting this for the first commandment. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So Jesus is directly quoting from the Old Testament. He's establishing the Old Testament. We see this continually. The New Testament writers quote from the Old Testament all the time. We see uh, Paul, um, when writing in Romans 7, he quotes uh, the commandment, uh, you shall not covet, from Exodus 20, um, as, by the way, the commandment that made him realize his own covetousness and, um, and how it caused him to die. Um, because when the commandment was there, he recognized all the covetousness that was in his own heart as a result of this commandment. We see the New Testament writers quoting from the Old Testament all the time. We also see in James. Uh, James quotes, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, he quotes, um, do not commit adultery uh, from the Ten Commandments. Uh, do not murder uh, and so forth. So the New Testament writers quote from the Old Testament all the time in many different cases. It would, it would take a, a long time uh, to go through the New Testament just to show how the New Testament writers quoted from the Psalms all the time to make their theological and doctrinal cases, how they quoted from the uh, Old Testament uh, law. They quoted from the ceremonial law to demonstrate Christ's fulfillment, especially like in the book of Hebrews. Um, Fulfillment of that law, since Jesus now fulfills that law, that's why we don't follow the ceremonial laws, because Jesus has accomplished all that in himself. Uh, he is a fulfillment of that. But one of the questions I would have for somebody is says the Old Testament law is not for us today at all, and there's nothing there for us, and we shouldn't take and create doctrine from it, even though Scripture actually tells us to, once again, 2 Timothy 3.16. But the question I would have is, you actually get yourself into a little bit of trouble doing this. Uh, first of all, there is no mandate in the New Testament at all against bestiality, for example. Now, we all know, it's written upon our heart, that bestiality is a sin. Um, but it's also written in the Old Testament law. But it doesn't exist anywhere in the New Testament. So if... If you can't appeal to the Old Testament as um, as a place to go to demonstrate that bestiality is a sin, and you can only go to the New Testament, you can't demonstrate that to anyone. And uh, also, um, 
This is an interesting one, but cross-dressing, men wearing women's clothes and women wearing men's clothes. Um, that is a sin. It's wrong to do that. But you can't demonstrate that from the New Testament. You can from the Old Testament, but you cannot do that from the New Testament. So just some thoughts there. Um, oh, another one that I wanted to to mention was that when soldiers themselves... Um, you know, we, we could ask the question, is it, is it right for a Christian to be in law enforcement or to be a soldier or any of those types of things? Well, let, let's see. I uh, can just consider how in the New Testament, those who had these professions, how it was handled. When soldiers came to John the Baptist, uh, they asked him what they should do. And he told them that they should be content with their wages and that they should treat people fairly. He tell, did not tell them to abandon their uh, their livelihood, to abandon being a soldier. We see Cornelius, who was a centurion. He was a commander over a hundred men. Um, when Peter came to him and Cornelius was converted, we don't have anything recorded about Cornelius being asked to abandon his profession. There's no hint in the text at all about it. And if that is actually true, that that's something that we as Christians would do, the likelihood of it being recorded in that case would be very high because you're talking about a significant change in the life of Cornelius if he would abandon his uh, his livelihood and his profession. Um, the other thing is, in Romans 13, verse 4, it's speaking about those who uh, are in positions of authority. It actually says, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So, being a law enforcement officer is being a servant of God. Being a servant of God is not a bad thing. Um, you can't make that particular case. So, those are just a few thoughts uh, that I had on this uh, topic. I just wanted to get that out there. Um, it's not a thorough discussion of it, but it's uh, it's a start, and it may give you uh, a few things to think about. So uh, I hope that that was uh, helpful to you, and um, we will uh, see you guys next week. And uh, Lord willing, and God bless. Inherit God's kingdom